Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. It is time to rethink retreat based on what is known about shoreline adaptation and management. The challenge is to move the conversation past binary options, armoring or retreat, toward a broader, more complex and place-specific discussion of the problems, risks, and various options that communities have for addressing climate change. That introduction was drafted by Charles Lester and shared on LinkedIn recently to announce the completion of an outstanding new report and study in the Journal of Coastal Research entitled Shoreline Retreat in California, Taking a Step Back. Tyler, one of our favorite topics, the complex, ever-changing issue of how to respond to increasing sea levels and manage properties along the shoreline. We're talking about adaptation and retreat today. You know, Peter, I, I don't know if you remember, but when I first started working with you, and I think it was one of one of my first ASBPA conferences. And you know, we were talking. You might. It was. I think it was in New Jersey. I, I don't remember the exact location, but it, I just remember it was my first time as a professional in the coastal space. And my initial gut reaction was, "Why don't we retreat?" It was like, "Why are we mm-hmm. t- working so hard to fight nature?" That was my kind of. You know, I was totally naive. I hadn't been, I hadn't met the the dredgers and the and the engineers and learned about terminal groins and all the all the ideas of coastal management yet. It was just like it seemed crazy to stand in the way of such an awesome force such as the ocean. And yet, all around the American shoreline, we see a development going right up to the line, and these are incredibly valuable homes. So. When you actually get dollars to donuts and try to solve this problem, it's a much more complicated problem, Peter. And that's what that's what we've talked about over the years since that first ASBPA meeting is how do we even approach making something like that happen? And the thing about this question, Peter, is that this is not purely hypothetical. The seas are rising and it's only a matter of time before we will be forced to retreat from some properties from some locations. And that's why I think that this conversation today with two amazing guests is gonna be a lot of fun. Well, joining us today on the American Shoreline Podcast, two of the most experienced thinkers on this issue, I think in America, Charles Lester is the Director of Ocean and Coastal Policy Center um, at University of California, Santa Barbara, and formerly the uh, Executive Director of the California Coastal Commission for many years. Uh, Charles is joined today by one of my other favorite thinkers on the American shoreline, Gary Griggs. Uh, Gary is the former director of the Institute for Marine Science at UC Santa Cruz, uh, famed professor uh, at the university, I believe uh, about to begin his 51st year as uh, as a professor and now serving as a distinguished professor at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, We couldn't have uh, two better people to discuss, I think, one of the cutting edge issues on the American shoreline, 
Well, Peter, it's going to be a great show, and we look forward to getting into it after a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, everybody, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Gary Griggs and Charles Lester, we sure appreciate you two taking time out of your busy schedules to talk to our audience around the country. Great. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. The, the paper came out in the Journal of Coastal Research recently, uh, Shoreline Retreat in California, taking a step back. Uh, Gary, I'd like to start with you. Uh, Tell us about the collaboration with your co-authors, Kiki Pash uh, from the University of California Channel Islands, and also Ryan Anderson on the paper from uh, Santa Clara University. What brought you four together, and what did you hope to accomplish in undertaking this analysis? Yeah, I think we all uh, represent somewhat different viewpoints, and uh, Charles is unique in having both a, a geology degree and a PhD and policy and government and then a law degree and has spent many years in the Coastal Commission looking at policy and planning. Um, so he has one very important viewpoint of what really happens out there. Um, Ryan is a sort of a coastal anthropologist, so he looks at it a lot more from the human aspect, I think, and how people think about the coast and, you know, what their feelings are, what their you know, how they approach things. And Kiki was actually one of my former graduate students. So we are probably the closest, although she's much smarter than I am, is now doing things like GPS and drones and other ways of looking at the coast. But we got started a couple of years ago and have done maybe two or three other manuscripts together. And it seems like it was a really good collaborative approach. Someone once said the most difficult thing about collaboration is you have to do it with somebody. And, uh, in our case, it's worked out really, really well. I think different perspectives, um, sort of different occupations in a sense, all bringing that together. So it was, it's been a really fruitful partnership, I think. The cross-section of policy and science and the human interaction on issues of this complexity is essential. Charles Lester, uh, many years at the California Coastal Commission, can you talk about your motivation in joining the your co-authors in an analysis of of this very complicated issue. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, as, as Gary said, it, we're an interdisciplinary group and I've always been interdisciplinary or interested in bringing disciplines together in my career. And uh, as Gary mentioned, uh, I came out of a science background and then went into law and policy and then spent many years in government and now back to academia as a researcher. But so bringing these different 
views together is really important. But in this particular case, uh, it's a continuation of a collaboration and, and working with Gary. Gary's one of my mentors, you know, and, you know, I've learned so much from Gary over the years, but the opportunity to bring his uh, long view and experience to this issue together with my own uh, experience in California government and knowing what what we've been doing. And so wanting to bring those two things to this challenge that we're facing all over the country. And, and in California, we've kind of been stuck a little bit. So, you know, those three things, dealing with this really difficult question about managed retreat and sea level rise, what do we do? Uh, bringing the experience, the long view of California's history, and then what I actually know about what we've been doing on the coast. Well, that, that feeds very nicely. And Gary, I'd like, you know, I mentioned in the top of the show, my initial reaction when it came to uh, standing up to the power of the sea was that managed retreat was kind of the logical solution. And you've been at this business a long time. Uh, when did you first kind of encounter the concept of managed retreat? And was it, did you have a similar reaction to that I did or was it different? <laughs> oh boy, that's a really good question. Um, and one of the things I thought about as soon as you made that initial observation many years ago was a conversation I had with um, Professor Bob Weigel, who was at Berkeley, a really prominent coastal engineer for many, many years, and was one of the early people involved in the ASBPA. Uh, and he fortunately passed away a couple of years ago. He So he was about... Uh, maybe 20 years older than I was, and had been through a lot, member of the National Academy of Engineering and a really wise, thoughtful guy. And whenever I come up with some new idea, like, well, let's just manage retreat, that wasn't one I put to him. Hey, Gary, for every complicated problem, there's always a simple answer, and it's always wrong. <laughs> so I, I, I repeat that to myself often when I come up with something that I think is a, you know, a simple answer. And there's three things that I try to keep in mind. Um, and I've told audiences I speak to about this topic. One is there's nothing we can do over the long term to hold back the Pacific Ocean. So whether it's managed retreat or unmanaged retreat, at some point it's going to be one or the other. And the Pacific Ocean is, you know, seven or 8,000 miles wide. It doesn't care about a few feet on either side at the edge, but we've built right out to that edge because that's the most valuable property with the, with the best view, the most desirable. And, and the other is um, Mother Nature always bats last. Um, so no matter what we do, there's going to be another bigger event. Sea level is going to be higher. We're going to get another hurricane. So Whatever we call this, and I don't remember now, sometime in the last, you know, maybe four or five years, um, it may have been from this group at Stanford, um, Siders and Hino, who I started seeing writing articles about managed retreat and so forth that led me to think, yeah, um, how does that work in California? And I think then talking to Charles, and he had a really important role in writing this paper on sort of the decision the Coastal Commission has made in making this distinction between it isn't just binary, it isn't just yes or no. We've been doing a lot of things for a long time. I wrote a paper a couple of years ago called, you know, Lost Neighborhoods of the California Coast. And I was trying to point out that this isn't new. 
But I think the people living on the coast today and in other states think this has never happened. So obviously we can't do it because of all these reasons. I shared Tyler's uh, experience at ASBPA over the many years that I've attended. Uh, I'm pleased to see that as an organization, there is a more deliberate discussion about this issue integrated into the conference. The ASBPA community uh, represents the scientists and engineers and specialists who try to determine how best to respond to, uh, to, to rising seas and, and shoreline retreat. Um, they're expert in trying to fix the problem. Uh, in my experience, though, at ASBP, I was so pleased to see it beginning to emerge as an active discussion. Uh, I really have to say, Gary, I enjoyed your keynote presentation, which focused uh, right down the middle on this topic, being a feature at that conference. Uh, I'd like to ask both of you, and I'd like to begin with Charles. Uh, Charles, what is it about the topic of managed retreat uh, that makes it difficult uh, for policymakers to approach? Well, that's sort of the that's the question, I think, which is, you know, we're talking in California, and you know, I, I think it's important to recognize that every state and every context is a little bit different. So with that in mind, in California, a lot of this discussion has been focused on the urbanized, developed sections of coast where you've got some very long-standing communities that have been on the coastline in hazardous areas. You've got some of the most expensive real estate in the world, uh, and people love their coastal communities. They're, they're not going to just pick up and walk away. Uh, so you know, right off the bat, you've got this tremendously um, difficult set of property interests on one hand. And then on the other hand, in California, we have 50 years of proactive coastal management going back to Proposition 20 in 1972, where the people said, we want to protect the coast. We care about our beaches. We want to be able to access the beaches, protect our wetlands and habitats. And so you've got these two really strong interests on both sides of this question and you've got a dynamic shoreline and so right off the bat you've got one of the most difficult questions to deal with which is how do we account for both of those interests important community values property values and important environmental and recreational and social values really a culture of california and its shoreline you know how do you bring those together and balance them find that sweet spot where you can begin to uh, adapt to what's happening. And Gary's right, you're not going to stop the Pacific Ocean. So the question is not, is this going to change, but how are we going to change in response to it? And taking into account those both, both of those um, extremely deeply embedded values. Gary, I'd like to kind of get your overview thoughts on the complexity of the issue. And in particular, uh, Charles is uh, introduction to the paper on LinkedIn, where he talked about moving beyond the binary choice of retreat versus adaptation. Um, what do you think, in your view, accounts for uh, the difficulty of uh, coming up with effective approaches uh, to this dilemma? Yeah, I think Charles hit that um, with the coastline has been 
you know, intensively developed, and we developed it in a period in California when the climate was pretty calm between the late 40s and the late 70s when we were in what's now known as a, a cool or negative Pacific decadal oscillation cycle without any big storms, without a lot of excess rainfall, a lot, not many El Ninos. So we built on the bluffs and the beaches and the dunes in a calm time. And then all of a sudden the climate shifted and we've had some major El Nino events that you know led to more erosion, more flooding, property loss that I think opened people's eyes a bit. And that's when also permits for seawalls um, really expanded and along with the understanding uh, and we've done some of that research here on what the impacts of seawalls are. So it's not just as simple as, yeah, let's just build a wall because ultimately that's going to lead to the loss of a beach. Um, they're expensive. They have a lot of impacts. And, and nourishment is another solution that's been put out there where we've spent billions of dollars. It's also very expensive and very short-lived. But I think the root of the problem is so many people that live on the coast, um, that's their paradise. That's their Eden. And maybe in the East, it's been there for generations not so much here on the West Coast, because a lot of those oceanfront homes are very new. People originally didn't build right on the coast. Um, I don't think that view, that perspective had the value it does today. So they're understandably attached to it. I've worked as a consultant for a number of years now with oceanfront property owners or those wanting to buy, those wanting to improve seawalls or build seawalls. And it's really it's a complicated, messy issue, but I think our initial communication about this, um, the idea of including managed retreat in local city and counties, uh, local coastal programs, I think was a little bit um, unfortunate or misleading. And I think people interpreted that and Charles may have some views on this because I think it originally came from the Coastal Commission as they just asked cities and counties to redo their local coastal programs, update them, and include, include managed retreat as a way to respond to sea level rise. And I think the message people heard or got was they're going to come in and take our house tomorrow. And I think we have to get beyond that, and I think this paper does that giving a number of examples of ways in which we've avoided hazards, we've removed some properties or structures, we've relocated, we've redeveloped, and we're planning for the future. So that I think everybody would like those coastal homeowners to be able to stay there as long as they can. But I think what we need to get across is that climate change is real, that sea level is really rising. It's rising at an accelerated rate, and we have some pretty good numbers of, um, you know, where it'll probably be in 2030 and maybe 2050. It gets a little more challenging out at 2100 and say, you know, we want you to stay here as long as you can, but can we agree that at some point, if you're on the beach, maybe it's when your house gets flooded uh, every year or every other year or once a month, or maybe if you're on a sea cliff or a bluff, when the cliff gets to within five feet of your house, we've got to do something. We've got to have a trigger point. And I think if we can get to that point, we will have come a long way in terms of just sort of accepting the reality of sea level rise, knowing we have to do something, but it, it's, it's not going to be moving your house out of the way tomorrow. 
Well, and it's it's also it's not just uh, developing the trigger point; it's developing these techniques, the trigger points, the the criteria that would enable us to undertake a managed retreat before calamity. I mean, that's the thing. It's like we're going to learn this lesson one way or another, right? Because as you say, it's it's coming. So, Charles, uh, can you give our audience kind of an elevator? overview, if you will, of this paper and really why it is contributive to the conversation about managed retreat as it exists today. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so I think I think Gary's right to say whether whether it was the way it was communicated or what people heard, uh, we did get into this conflict around managed retreat. We're going to move your house tomorrow. Oversimplification, in my view. And I guess I would I would start by saying, you know, 50 years ago, when we first started this mission to protect our coast, the California Resources Agency said this, shoreline erosion problems have plagued California for many years, and millions of dollars have been spent in attempts to solve them. Many problems still exist, and new ones are likely to occur. Now, you know, looking back now, that's a huge understatement, right? And we're we're seeing some of those chickens come home to roost in terms of the new problems. But one of the points of the paper is we've been thinking about shoreline erosion and how to manage development on an eroding shoreline for 50 years. This is not a new thing. And so the paper uh, points that out, points out that what we're talking about is an acceleration of a sea level rise trend. And Gary has can talk a lot about that. And so I was wanting to uh, convey what I knew to be the case, but um, is not talked about often, which is what have we actually done about that problem in our past experience and what can we learn from it going forward? And so the paper goes through a number of examples of how we actually have been moving development away from hazard zones as a matter of course, in a lot of different ways for the last four decades. And that's been through the mostly through the California Coastal Commission's uh, planning and regulatory program. But the paper focuses on different modes of that implementation. So I think it it's not the case that we don't have policy mechanisms and don't know how to do this. We've been doing it in many cases. And so there are examples of uh, the routine use of setbacks for new development. Granted, it's not moving something that's already there, but it's anticipating what will happen in terms of an erosional uh, hazard zone and saying, let's move further back from that. Uh, then there are examples where we have put on conditions <clears throat> which are in effect rolling easements, which say, okay, you can have your new house on this particular bluff, but you need to set it back far enough to never need a seawall. And when it's no longer uh, viable, you will have to remove it. So a managed retreat mechanism built into the policy decision. So the paper goes through a number of examples like that to make the point that, look, we have been doing this. Here are a lot of ways we have been doing it. And what can we take away from those examples to inform how we think about managed retreat in a more textured and multidimensional way so that it's not just this binary discussion about retreat or not, but rather a discussion about how does movement happen? What are the triggers for that movement? Uh, how can we 
learn from those examples and apply them going forward. And so, you know, in the end, the paper is an effort to try to open up that conversation. And, and again, whether people communicated it wrongly or it was heard wrongly, getting back to the reality that coastal management is something that happens over long periods of time. It happens in sequences of actions. It takes a lot of time and it's very expensive. We have been doing it. That in itself was a simple point that we were trying to make. So, uh, you know, I can go into more detail there, but that's kind of the, the nutshell on the paper. Uh, and, and, you know, I have to say that was a surprise to me that there isn't a track, there is a track record here. We can look at how uh, this issue has been faced in the past. Uh, I'd like both of you to comment on this, but starting, uh, Gary, with you, uh, Charles is talking about that track record and that there are examples. Um, would you highlight uh, an example of managed retreat or property management uh, that you found compelling or instructive uh, for the future? Uh, well, um, well, one that's gotten a fair amount of publicity um, that we talk about is this um, Surfers Point at Ventura, where there's a well-known surfing spot, but the shoreline was retreating and there was a bike path and a parking lot. And they figured out in cooperation with the community and the surfers and the bikers and the hikers that they could move those things back. They actually moved things back from the edge and they built something new, kind of a cobble berm, which was sort of the armor, but sort of a natural armor that enabled things to um, sort of remain, they built some sand dunes. So I think it was a, a great example of what could happen when different groups get together. There wasn't any houses there. Um, the two uh, two sections of State Highway 1 that have been approved, one completed, one's underway, I think are other good examples. Um, one down in San Simeon and one up on the Sonoma Coast. And I think there, in a way, we're setting an example of the government doing something rather than Big Brother coming after you. And both of those, as Charles pointed out, are expensive and they took time, but ultimately it's going to buy us a lot more um, a lot more time in the future in a very safe highway where you can still see the coast from, but it, we're not driving along the edge of a cliff. Um, a lot of the places that have been moved back and, and houses actually have been picked up and moved back. It's interesting. Years ago, I built a house Actually, I built three different houses up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and one of those we built on a north-facing slope because it had a nice view. And I realized afterwards, you really want to be on a south-facing slope. We were surrounded by big trees, and we didn't see the sun for three months. So we had enough land. I made some observations, and I realized we could actually move the house, clear some more land, and get a much better setting. So we brought in a commercial house mover, and I was surprised that they can move a lot of things. So there have been houses that have been moved back intact. Um, some that have been just been taken down. And I think in many cases, like apartments in Pacifica, they have been bought and sold so many times and people have made money off of those. Um, I don't think there was a lot of resistance when the city finally said, these are not safe. You cannot occupy them. Um, we're going to, we're going to demolish them. And that, that happened. There's another example at UC Santa Barbara, student housing in Isla Vista that was built right on the edge of the cliff. Um, 
I think they've made a ton of money. The people that own them from student rentals, but they were hanging over the cliff and they finally were ordered to take down part of those structures. So they remained still as, you know, usable apartments with the outermost edges taken back. So I think these are, again, a few examples of what can be done. I read recently, I think it was, I don't know whether it's New Jersey, Montauk, um, where they said, well, this has never been done anywhere. It can't be done environmentally, engineering, economic. It's just not possible. And I want to say, no, 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 no. <laughs> Read this paper. We've been doing this for a long time in one form or another. So I think one of the real values that Charles brought together were these examples that the Coastal Commission has been involved with, these different approaches, avoidance, removal, relocation. There's a lot of examples but I think we just have so many very, very expensive parcels and houses now right on the edge. Uh, it's something people still really can't grasp. I gave, I was asked to give a talk about three years ago to a local group of coastal homeowners, it's their annual meeting. And they said, uh, could I give a talk? And I said, yeah, we wanna know about beaches and sand transport and cliffs and sea level rise. And I said, okay. And they said, there's only two words you can't mention. And I should say each of the members of this organization have to have oceanfront property. And I said, two words I can't mention. What are those? And they said, manage retreat. <laughs> so it was like, uh, you know, putting your head in the sand in a sense. Uh, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. And I think that's sort of where we are with, unfortunately, too many things in politics today. You know, it's, it's, uh, there's no compromising, you know, you're on my team or you're not. And I think this paper is an example of, no, there's a lot of teams here. There's a lot of different approaches, but ultimately, again, we can't stop the Pacific ocean. We can only plan on how we're going to get out of the way. Well, and I, I, I like to say that, uh, you know, coast, these are, this is a social issue. This is not an ocean issue. The ocean is doing what it's doing. And, we as a society of of people have to decide how we're going to kind of dig ourselves out of this and it is really complicated and I, I have to say that the paper does an excellent job of breaking down you know the subcomponents that make up a managed retreat project and it is more complicated than I thought at ASBPA turns out who would have thought uh, because you know, you got to ask yourself, well, where are you even going to put the people that you're moving, the infrastructure you're moving, the roads you're moving? I mean, you actually have to find another place and you have to justify that that place is better. And that can be that can be challenging, too, um, not just from a social perspective, but also from an environmental perspective. I mean, uh, everything is connected these days, we understand. So but Charles, I'd love to kick you the same question. You have an extensive history with the Coastal Commission inside California policy. You've been up and down the coast. You wrote this paper. What are some policy uh, policies that you have seen kind of in, in, in your research here that have been successful in spurring uh, retreat? So some of them um, Gary mentioned in those examples. And so like the the Santa Barbara County case in Isla Vista, UC Santa Barbara, uh, the county actually has a policy in its local coastal plan that's the plan approved by the Coastal Commission as adequate to carry out state law. 
that policy specifically says that uh, seawalls will not be approved generally for these um, situations that we're talking about in Isla Vista uh, and managed retreat or moving relocation of development is the preferred policy. So they embrace this idea as a policy direction. And then, as Gary said, they've actually been implementing it over time. Uh, granted, it's incremental. They're taking off, you know, the most seaward sides of buildings gradually. But over several decades, Santa Barbara County's probably made, I don't know, two or three dozen decisions where they've actually done this with individual structures in this neighborhood. So a systematic implementation of a policy direction over time through the permitting process, the regulatory process. And that's basically what the Coastal Commission has been doing since the early 1980s, which is trying to implement the state law that says, you know, one thing, new development should be done in a way that's safe and to not need a seawall in the future. And two, that existing development, if it is in danger from erosion, you need to do everything you can to avoid seawalls. Uh, but granted, you can have one if, if it's the only answer. So those two policies have been really embodied in these conditions that the Coastal Commission has put on through the regulatory process on new developments that say, again, yes, you can build a house here as long as you put it in a place that's safe, according to our best geotechnical analysis. And second, that you commit to never building a seawall. And what that means effectively is the, the property owner needs to internalize that decision to build in a risky place and be prepared to remove that development when it happens. And so there are examples in the paper that um, highlight how we've actually done that in a number of places through that condition process. So uh, the city of Half Moon Bay has uh, recently ordered the removal of an old foundation at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel uh, because it was becoming a hazard, right? It was starting to fall down onto the beach and, and was a hazard for beachgoers. So they required it to be removed. We have a number of large hotels along the coastline that have these conditions that say you will need to remove these pieces of development if and when they are no longer safe. So it's, you know, it's not a, a rocket science policy. It's basically a regulatory requirement to recognize the risk and act appropriately when the time comes. So we have triggered future adaptation action through these development decisions. Um, the other thing that uh, we, we've done and, and is highlighted in some of those examples, like the, the road relocation examples that Gary mentioned, is to be clear on what it is that we're trying to accomplish over time. And, and based on some of the work I'm doing now, looking at uh, community level adaptation planning, I think this is one of the really important parts of this managed retreat question, which is, what is our vision for the future coast? given what we think is going to happen with sea level rise and shoreline change. And what kind of community do we want to be? Do we want to be walled off everywhere along the ocean edge? Or do we want to have something different that has a naturally eroding shoreline with habitats that are not altered by seawalls or public access that is not stopped by revetments? You know, these are um, community value decisions about what they want the shoreline to look like in light of the changes that are coming. And I think we're making more progress on that. And if you, so if you look at the um, road relocation, the highway relocation that the Coastal Commission did in, 
over the last 30 or 20 years, really, um, the commission said, okay, you can have an emergency revetment to protect this highway that's in danger because it's an important asset, an important transportation link, an important recreational um, route for visitors. But we want you to take a step back and plan for the relocation of that segment so we can restore the shoreline. Because what we care about is having a natural shoreline that's not uh, has art doesn't have artificial protection and stopping erosion and, and is a viable, uh, healthy habitat. The transportation agency said, hey, uh, we can do that, but it's going to take 15 years. And the policy mechanism that we used was a, a simple, okay, let's get started. We're going to give you a five-year permit to start the permit planning process for that highway relocation. We'll check in in five years. We'll check in in another five years. And at the end of the day, that became a project that kind of defined a big part of my career. It was, it was 15 years from start to finish. The emergency permit to the completed construction of the relocated highway. But in the end, what we had was a highway that is now safe for 100 years in theory, based on the uh, projections. That's also the old alignment of the highway is now a new coastal trail for the public and state parks is taking that on. And we have a restored shoreline, which is now serving the way the shoreline in that area serves in, in many other places, which is habitat for elephant seals that are hauling out and all of the tremendously uh, rich intertidal communities that are in that particular area. So it's kind of like a win-win-win. Uh, you know, we can talk some more about what is not being done. And I don't mean the paper to suggest that we don't have some really difficult um, community decision processes at the scale of community. You know, moving a segment of highway in a rural agricultural area is a little bit different than moving a neighborhood. But we can take those insights and apply them in similar ways to begin that process of community visioning and then figuring out what are the steps to get from A to B, recognizing that B is maybe 20, 30, 40 years in the future. I gotta say, I like the the framing of the issue. Uh, it, it counsels patience and it takes long-term planning. Uh, the example you used is a public infrastructure example, which as you point out is uh, slightly different and perhaps easier than applying uh, these principles in the private sector. Um, Charles, I want to I ask about the, 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 the blinding issue of cost and the implications of the constitutional protections against the taking of property uh, for public purposes. Uh, for the listeners out there, takings analysis can fall into a deliberate uh, ac acquisition of private property, reverse condemnation, or imminent uh, uh, domain to uh, bring property into the public ownership realm. And it's also the regulatory taking, which is when you apply setbacks and you deny an owner one of the bundles of sticks in, the, in how they talk about it in property law, the right to build um, Charles, I just have a hard time um, avoiding the topic that this is going to be expensive and uh, both transactionally in terms of the legal battles that would ensue, but and also in terms of the physical cost of removal and relocation, whether it's a road or an apartment or a hotel or a house, 
Can you speak a little bit about, from a policy perspective, from your many years at the California Coastal Commission, how this issue of takings and cost factors in to the future of this issue? Well, that, I mean, there are a number of ways to talk about that in my mind. And, and one thing that I think is important first to say is that when we, when we think about cost, uh, we should be thinking not just about the cost of relocating a development or phasing a development out, but what is the cost if we don't do that? And so there's a public cost. And that's why at the beginning of this um, interview, we talked a little bit about the public values that are embedded in California's history, like the public beach, the recreational beach, the, the amazing ecology, the views, the aesthetics, all of those things that make California's coast so amazing. Those have value too. And we know it's from years and years of doing this, that if you build seawalls, the beach eventually disappears if, if it's an eroding shoreline, right? So is that, is that a cost? Shouldn't that be accounted for also when we think about the cost of doing something or something else? And so I think it's important to recognize it's not just the millions of dollars that are going to be like it took millions and millions of dollars to move that highway. But what about the value of what we have after we've moved it? And so what's going to be lost if we don't move development back from these areas? That's a, the first point in terms of, um, you know, private property and and those difficult questions about takings. Again, that um, I think there's two things. One, the California program has a long history of doing proactive regulation of property. And as you know, or as you implied, there's a lot of gray area as to what what is appropriate regulation or not. And courts get involved in that. And the Coastal Commission has generally done okay. They've lost some, you know, notable cases over the years, like the um, you know, the Nolan case where they lost a public access uh, condition essentially in Ventura County. But in general, the idea that you can approve development, but restrict it in certain ways to address your resource concerns has held up in the courts. So a setback for new development is not controversial for the most part. Um, I'm, I think we talk about in the paper an example in Northern California, where the Coastal Commission uh, did their ge geotechnical analysis of a proposed new house on a high eroding bluff and concluded that given the rule that was in the plan, which said you need to build in a way to be safe for 100 years, I think it was, uh, when you looked at the erosion data, you actually couldn't do that on this parcel. It wasn't deep enough to set back the house far enough to be safe for projected 100 years of erosion. So the Coastal Commission said, okay, put it as far back as you can, and we will essentially do a, a takings override to allow you to build this house anyway, even though it wasn't consistent with the rule. But then they put on the conditions about you won't build a seawall, and when you need to, you need to remove the development. And that enables the property owner to get an, a reasonable economic return on their investment that that property is probably going to be there for 70 years. It, you know, it's unclear exactly when it will happen, but at the time it'll need to be removed and that property owner will have benefited from the use of that property and the public will have benefited from the restriction on that property. So those regulatory takings questions are, uh, you know, brought up all the time and they're complicated, but I think we can, we can manage that. 
one of the issues I've been focused on also, uh, which is not talked about in the paper, but it concerns me is the public trust resources at the end of the day are moving inland because of sea level rise. And so in California, as in many states, public owns the land below the mean high tide. And as sea level rises, that mean high tide line on average moves inland. And so what do we do when that public property interest confronts the private property interests? And if we don't get ahead of this from a planning standpoint, in my view, we're facing a lot more legal conflict, not, not productive in my mind. Uh, we need to get ahead of the curve so that we can avoid the knockdown dragouts about who wins and loses in that kind of a situation. Well, that is definitely uh, an important factor that, Peter, I think we see, at least in Texas, I know that that's come up, and we've seen it all over, uh, I think, the American shoreline. I mean, you you see uh, private property owners digging their heels in. I believe there's a, a law group that specializes in making these kinds of, of claims against takings and so on and so forth. But, you know, one of the things at the end of the paper that is said is that uh, successful retreat often uh, needs a vision. It needs a clear vision. And Gary, uh, I love I love having you on the show because you've got some you've got some longitudinal data that I just I just really enjoy your perspective. And what what Gary, if you had to look forward, uh, knowing everything you know about the California coast and coasts around the world and development patterns and You've seen this coast change a lot in your lifetime. What vision for the California coast would you have with regard to managed retreat? What what do the future coasts of California look like to you vis-a-vis retreat? Whoa. Pushing my envelope a little bit here. <laughs> One of the things about getting older that I don't like is I want to see what it's going to look like in 50 years and what's actually going to happen. Um and I think we're focused, and Charles made a good point here, we're focused a lot on, well, these people that own this house, how are they going to move or, or how are we going to pay them off for it or where are they going to go to? Um, I want to look at it more from the public's view because I don't know what the percentages of California's population that live right on the edge is, you know, probably a fraction of a percent. And for the most part, they tend to be people of uh, wealthier people. A lot of the people I work with as a consultant are pretty wealthy people that are going to afford to live. I mean, Broad Beach and Malibu, the houses are 10, 15, 20, 25 million dollars. So buying them out is never going to happen in my view. And for a lot of these people, they're second homes. Um, so I was trying to think of it from the public point of view. And as we know, the more armor we put in, the more beaches will disappear with continued sea level rise. So we can't keep... Um, we're basically going to flood or drown the beach where we put a barrier in because we had a shoreline 18,000 years ago was 10 miles offshore. And as long as there's nothing in the way, the shoreline, the dunes, the cliff will just keep retreating inland and we'll have beaches. But once we put a barrier, whether it's a wall or a house or a vetment, it's going to disappear. So um, I think, and I think that's what the Coastal Commission is about is, is, you know, what is public trust, um, that I think there's going to be areas where we're going to realize we finally have to start moving back. And one of the things I think cities and counties are starting to do is look at um, sort of 
vulnerabilities, where the most vulnerable properties, those that have been flooded the most often or where the cliff is eroding the fastest. And we're starting to see that with the apartments in Pacifica coming down, the apartments in Isla Vista, Santa Barbara being partially taken down. But the difficult thing, I think, are those communities that are pushing back that we talk about, the Pacifica and Imperial Beach and Del Mar that are refusing and are putting, digging their feet in. Um, so I think the visioning for the future is going to be challenging, but I think that's a really good question. What do we see this looking like 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years out? It may not look much different in 10 years, except I'm sure we're going to lose some more houses um, that would be taken off because they're not safe. Um, seems like um, it's always going to be the next row, the next street, the next road that's going to be moving back. And we've been doing that in places. Um, there's a an interesting example that we visited a couple of years ago when I did this book on Coast in Crisis, a Global Challenge, and it's on the Yorkshire coast of England. And I wrote a paper about this. And there they have been keeping track of where the coast is, the bluff is, since the time of the Romans, 2,000 years, and it's been going back at about two meters or six feet per year on average. And there's something like 28 villages or towns that have completely disappeared. So what they're using the land for now, for the most part, is what they call caravan parks. We might call them mobile homes here or coaches. And these uh, sort of not high income people, average income people can afford to buy one of these. They get a concrete pad and electricity and water and sewer, and they live right there on the edge for five or 10 years. And then when it gets close, they hook up a truck and they move to the back of the line and another row gets the front row for a while. <laughs> and I think it's, it's, it's one of the few places I would call a resilient coast. But I think we're having trouble here figuring out how to deal with that in, in a way that they have, we're not gonna convert our you know, Carmel's and Malibu's to mobile home parks um, but there it was basically cow pastures and, you know, hay fields. So it wasn't expensive land and it's worked out to give front row for a lot of people who would have never had that otherwise. Uh, Charles, at, at the ASBPA conference this year, as I mentioned, Gary did the uh, did a keynote presentation on the future sea level rise risks for the state of California. It was compelling. There is absolutely no question. Uh, what's coming our way, or uh, not just in California, but around the American shoreline, on shoreline retreat. Um, and as I think, as Gary pointed out in that talk and mentioned in this in this discussion, uh, the Pacific Ocean doesn't care about the edge, and uh, it's going to do what it does. Um, there's the question I have for you as a policy person is. It seems to me that somewhere there is a part of us, uh, the American public, uh, maybe policymakers, uh, developers, that don't quite believe this to be true. Um, at the ASBPA conference, we had a chance to take the tour of the Southern California shoreline down to Huntington Beach and through these developed areas. Uh, and it looks just idyllic, of course. Uh but according to uh, to Gary's analysis, those areas are, and certain parts of it, are certain to be inundated and certain uh, to be destroyed at some point. 
Can you talk about the extent to which in your experience at the commission or in your current role, um, you feel like the, the understanding of this issue has penetrated and let's leave out the general public. Let's talk about the decision-making community. Do you feel that there is a, a recognition of this threat or are we still trying to convince people that sea level is real? Rise is real. Great question. Um, you know, and, and and again, a number of different levels. I think in California, uh, the idea that climate change is real and that sea level rise is happening is not controversial. Uh, maybe in some you know smaller segments of the population here and there, but the idea that it's happening, I don't think is is um, traumatic for folks. the The details of how that may happen are still, I think, a little opaque to a lot of people. Um, it's complicated science. There's a lot of uncertainty in the projection. So just understanding what it means. And even our science is, itself is evolving to understand better some of the, the different dimensions of that. So sea level rise in conjunction with fluvial storm runoff, right? The intersection of that and what it means for flooding or rising groundwater. And there's a lot of complexity in understanding what might happen with sea level, different levels of sea level rise. So we, we believe it's real and it's going to happen. There's a lot of uncertainty about exactly what that means and at what point in the future. Um, in terms of decision-making and, and planning for it, we've been now investing for uh, more than a decade in local community planning for adaptation. And so that, that was one of the things I was proud to have launched when I was at the Coastal Commission was a grant program for local governments to actually start to assess their vulnerabilities at the community level and then move to adaptation strategies to address those vulnerabilities. We're seeing a lot of that activity that has happened. About two-thirds of the governments on the outer coast of California have actually done a vulnerability assessment. So, you know, to do that and invest in that, you need to think it's real. Uh, based on those, another third have actually come up with strategies to figure to respond to that vulnerability. Where we're sticking is very few governments have actually updated their legal authorities to reflect those strategies. So we're getting stuck on some of these simplifications that we frame in the paper. You know, it's not just about managed retreat or not. There's a lot of stuff in between, and I think that's an important point to you know, pull out of the paper, which is managed retreat, again, happens, can happen over time through phases. And one of the other papers that Gary and I worked on together was uh, a few years back about revisiting the question of groins, for example. And so we're, there's a need, I think, to think about what are some of the interim strategies to respond to sea level rise and protecting beaches uh, that might lie in between where we are and full-scale managed retreat. We can use maybe groins in strategic places charged in the right way to not have you know, impacts around the surrounding communities uh, that might help preserve a beach for a little bit longer while sea level continues to rise and give us more time to, to figure out the next step. So that's partly what the paper is trying to convey also, which is let's think you know, a little more holistically about what our options are and how we can respond incrementally over time. Um, I, I did want to respond to the question about vision because 
you know, we're having a lot of discussion about adaptation pathways uh, now as the way to think about this problem and that we should identify pathways and then identify actions that will be triggered by changes in the environment that we're monitoring. I, I think that's a, you know, an effective way to help people get past, um, you know, thinking about movement as the only option and also thinking about long periods of time. You know, how do we conceive of adaptation over a 50 year time frame? However, I also think the vision point is important because if we define pathways, if we don't know where we're trying to get to, then those pathways could just become wandering. Like, oh, let's let's monitor conditions and we'll figure it out when we get there. I don't think that's the way we should think about pathways. It should be, where do we want to go and what are the pathways to get there? And that's what the vision point is. You know, what kind of community do we want in the future? Uh, and I agree with Gary, it'd be really great to be able to see where we get to in, in 50 years, but, um, you have to have a vision to inform those pathways if it's going to make sense and not simply be another you know series of decades of incremental reactive response to emergencies and that's um i think you know what goes to your implied i guess which is to what extent is the public engaged in this problem what i worry about now is the next big el nino uh, after we've seen increasing sea level rise, you know, what happens when we get another El Nino like 1982-83? And I think at that point, you're going to, you'll get another increment of recognition and embrace of the need to do something about this. And, um, you know, there's nothing like actual changes and impacts in the environment to make people think about an issue. It does get the attention. Uh... What I love about the paper, and I think uh, the discussion that we've had today is, uh, you're, I think you both are counseling uh, the coastal community and the professionals out there to to not panic. Uh, that there is a path forward. There are examples we can point to. Uh, we have to take advantage of the time it is going to take to make these adjustments. And Gary, I'd like to give you the last word. Um, do you, are you optimistic about the capacity of the state of California to tackle this issue effectively, at least in some cases? Uh, how does it look to you going forward? I think I'm a compulsive optimist. Partly it's because I, because I teach and I think we need to convey optimism to our students, also because I'm a father of five and a grandfather of six, that I think um, I believe there's a future and it's going to be, you know, a future with a natural world that our kids can appreciate and enjoy that we're going to find ways. Um, one of the things that I've noticed recently, and I think it hasn't been proven, hasn't been effective to date, but it's going to be is, is the insurance mortgage industry. And I think Finally, the federal government is realizing you can't keep reinsuring these hurricane-prone areas. I think they're trying to change those rates. And the private insurance companies are starting to uh, either go out of business or refuse to uh, insure certain areas, particularly these hurricane-prone areas. But in California, it's the, you know, the fire-prone areas. So insurance companies are in business to make money. And if you can't get insurance, you can't get a mortgage. So economics may weigh in here. <laughs> to produce some answers. Um, and I think historical people just expected to be paid off or bought off. And 
I think that's going to disappear because we have so many other things to spend money on. So I, I'm optimistic about the future. Um, I think it was Winston Churchill says, if you want to, well, the American, um, something about democracy being the best solution after Americans have tried everything else. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's the worst form of government except for everything else. You know, and Gary mentioned this in the end, in the end for me, and somebody else said this, this is a, a human problem, a social problem. And so I think for us, whether it's California or looking at Florida and the, what just happened with the hurricane, you know, this is about taking care of people ultimately. And what, what is the right thing to do for everyone, not just those who are lucky enough to be able to afford a house right on the coastline. And so what is it that we need to be doing to take care of everyone from a justice and equity standpoint? along these shorelines that are inevitably going to change. So let's get ahead of that and figure out how to do right by more than just the people who are living right on the edge. Woo. Could not agree with you more. The paper is called Shoreline Retreat in California, Taking a Step Back. You will find it in the Journal of Coastal Research. If you're not following Charles Lester on LinkedIn or Gary Griggs on LinkedIn, these are two of the best thinkers about complicated issues on the American shoreline that I know of. A real pleasure to have you both on. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Gary Griggs, distinguished professor and former director of the Institute for Marine Science at the University of California, uh, Santa Cruz, and Charles Lester, former director of the California Coastal Commission and director of Ocean and Coastal Policy Center at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Thank you guys so much for sharing your insights and your continued work on this great topic on the American shoreline. I'm sure our lead listeners benefited from hearing the conversation today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.